Blog Talk Radio. Sherry. Today we welcome author Robert Hoyman. He created a new children's book called Limerick Comics. It's a very uh, interesting book. It's for kids 8 to 12. And here's Robert. Hi Robert, welcome to the show. Hello Sherry, I'm delighted to be with you today. Thank you for coming on. Uh, Where are you located? How's the weather there? Well, I am on the east coast of Florida, about uh, 20 miles south of Kennedy Space Center. And as you may know, we've had a little bit of uh, uh, difficult weather here the last day or two with a tropical storm that's hovering out to our southwest. But overall, we're in good position, much better than those of our uh, fellow Floridians on the uh, Gulf Coast down in southwest Florida. It's just windy and rainy, but Otherwise, just fine. So the hurricane's not coming toward you, or the tropical storm, or whatever it's no. called right now. <laughs> well, we're just going to get the outside remnants, but uh, as far as hurricanes are concerned, we've been extremely fortunate this year. We've been able to avoid the uh, entire hurricane season without having to put up uh, hurricane shutters. So wow. I'm crossing my fingers to get through the rest of November. For Florida, that's a lot. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> um, I remember my mother told me the story from when she was a kid. There was this really bad hurricane season that hit the East Coast. And uh, it hit Rhode Island. She was from Rhode Island. And she and her, it was, it was I think it was like one of the worst hurricanes until like Sandy or something. But, um, she was at the post office with her mother, and they ha- it was the only place that had two or three stories. I can't remember which. And everybody that could got into the post office because the whole, uh, all of Providence got flooded. Yeah, the after effects of the hurricanes are so difficult at times. Often some shortages and uh, we had a hurricane back in the mid-90s one time where we lost for about um, 10 days. And it made it rather difficult, uh, particularly since you know, in August, September, the weather here is still quite hot and muggy, so it was pretty uncomfortable. Although, when I was a child, I moved here at the age of 12, and I have to uh, really scratch my head to remember what it was like in those years when we did not have air conditioning. <laughs> I lived here about uh, seven years before we ever got an air conditioner. And so just being reacquainted with what life is like without them wasn't much fun. I can't even imagine living in Florida without air conditioning. Yes. And sometimes it's not just the heat that you think of. 
to be uh, the humidity as well that makes it rather difficult. Sometimes when it's very, very humid and you have uh, you know, rain that hovers over the area for a day or so, brings with it so much humidity. And in those days, you know, you couldn't shut your windows because it was too hot, so you had to leave your windows open. And I can remember there were some nights where the, the linens, the bed linens were so, you know, moist and, you know, couch cushions, everything, because you just absorbed the humidity. Wonderful thing about air conditioning is that you, know, you can shut the windows and it keeps it pretty well climate controlled. We also, on occasions, I can recall, I remember uh, it was a great privilege and uh, we would get very excited to get in the car and go somewhere for a couple of hours just to go into a store because the store had air conditioning. <laughs> wow. I think it's great. Yeah. Because it's amazing how it makes a difference. I have friends who live in Florida, and it makes all the difference. She, my, one of my girlfriends says it, it, like, it really kills you on the bill, the electricity bill, but she goes, it's worth it so you don't die. <laughs> yeah, well, we're coming up on some of the more comfortable months relative to the weather. November, December... January is usually pretty ideal. So, is that where that. when most people go to Florida is in the winter? They winter in Florida. Yeah, yeah the snowbirds come down in the winter time. You can always tell because we always complain about their driving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, as I mentioned, I live about 20 miles south of the Kennedy Space Center, and. Um, my family moved down here in 1964, and I was right in the midst of the Gemini program. And so my childhood, I got an opportunity to uh, bear witness to a host of launches from from the Cape and uh, the Gemini program, uh, not all of the Apollo launches, uh, including the Apollo 11, and uh, many of the space shuttle launches too. And so did you meet any of the astronauts? Pardon me? Did you get to meet any of the astronauts? No, no, I have not. Oh. But, um, it was commonplace for us when there, were, there was a space launch for the schools to monitor it on the radio. And it was about uh, 30 seconds liftoff. They would notify us on the intercom, and we would all file outside and look up and watch the launch. So that was quite exciting for a kid. That's really cool. That uh, to actually get to see that I uh those launches particularly to the moon, those were just historic. Yes. Yes, they were very exciting. And you know, also um with with the successes of the space program you know, it's having so many manned launches, uh, Apollo, particularly the space shuttle, although we did encounter some tragedy there. You know, uh, there was always a, a certain degree of tension because there were no guarantees that things would, you know, go as planned. So many variables to, to control. And when I was uh, when I was young, my brothers and I would be out in the front lawn throwing the baseball or playing football. And not only was there Kennedy Space Center, but there was uh, the... Uh, 
Air Force Station there, and they would have other launches too of military flights and um, rockets that they were experimenting and working on, weather satellites, and a great many unmanned launches that were fairly commonplace in those days. And we'd be off and playing ball, and you know, there, there was no real big publicity about the unmanned launches like there were about the Apollo or Gemini program. So we'd be playing ball, and we'd look up in the sky, and, oh, there's a launch. We'd see it from time to time. And for the most part, they would go up and you know, go out of sight. We'd continue on. But there were occasions where I can clearly remember one or two where apparently they would they had some sort of malfunction and it began to veer off course. And in order, when they had to explode the unmanned rocket, I guess to prevent it from endangering people over land or whatever. And so we saw a couple of them that you know, exploded, and that always would be in the back of our minds that this is very risky, and uh, it really is a testament to the amazing, amazing engineering and all of the great accomplishments with the space program. And when you think about all of the the benefits that that they brought with telecommunications and uh, products like Velcro, unending number of uh, advances that were brought about by the space program, it's, it's quite remarkable. It is. I was, you know, you were reminding, wasn't it Apollo 2 that exploded on the, that killed those poor astronauts? No, that was the Apollo 1. Oh, it was Apollo 1. Yep, and I can remember it clearly. I was in seventh grade, and we were at a basketball game, and they made the announcement that that had taken place, and we were scratching our heads, we didn't know anything about a manned launch, but as it turned out, it was it was a test, yeah, a routine test. That, it was a very somber mood here, I can completely remember. Very, very sad. Very sad. It was, it was so shocking sad. Um, really good guys, too. Yes, very accomplished, and Gus Grissom, I was one of the Apollo, excuse me, one of the uh, Gemini, Gemini astronauts who yeah. had had a flight or two prior to that. And uh, it just goes to show the sacrifices that are made uh, by so many to help us to have a better life here. That's right. And, you know, um, I remember having a lively discussion with a friend because uh, they were doing the space shuttle. Uh, after the uh, Challenger accident, and they said, "Well, why are they wasting the money on that anyway?" And also, I go, "Are you enjoying using your cell phone?" No, it wasn't the cell phone. It, I mean, it was the it was regular. It was a cell phone, but it was like a big brick. Um, <laughs> are you enjoying be having Teflon and uh, and uh, all this? You know, just going off on all the stuff we have. But cell phones, one of them, with all the technology that we have because of space travel. Um, uh, uh, archaeologists now have a means of finding out where finds are without doing pre digs because of NASA. Uh, there's so much that we owe to those men and women who sacrifice them, their lives to help us and, and to explore. 
it's just it's amazing people don't understand that. <laughs> yeah, exploring all facets of the earth, including uh, underwater technology. Yeah. Yeah, everybody was really so enamored by the finally the final discovery of the Titanic below the surface. Yep. After it had been uh, you know, unknown for so many years, you know the exact whereabouts of the Titanic and the underwater photography and what they were able to show us was quite compelling. That's another thing. We have a whole ocean that we ha we've hardly. It. I think, what is it, 20% we've explored? <laughs> we've, yes. And there's so much that we could uh, learn about ourselves if we did it, but there's no money in it. <laughs> yeah, the, compared to our exploration of space, it's hard to imagine that you know, there's a, there are vast regions on Earth that remain unexplored below the Earth below the uh, surface of the oceans. Isn't that sad? And it's not that yeah. we don't have the technology, they're just not willing to spend money on it. Yes. But I'm hoping that um, there will be much more done to help to restore our waters in terms of cleanliness and uh, you know, the, the amount of pollution that we put in the water. And, you know, it's important that we find that we can sustain the earth and make plans to the warming of the globe and preserve this planet that is it's precious. It is. It's all we've got. <laughs> yeah. I find it frightening too the to see the images that come out of California relative to the wildfires. Yeah. The intensity intensity of the hurricanes growing year by year and the, and the, the floods you know they're providing infrastructure in South Florida, Miami with pumps and um, taking steps to mitigate the rise and the effects it will have on our particularly since we have built I saw uh, I saw a documentary about that, and they said one of the things to protect Florida's coastline is to put the plants that they had torn out of it back. They weren't that pretty, but they protected the coastline from flooding. Uh, erosion protection. Yeah, but it was just it was uh, it, natural plants that Mother Nature gave to Florida. And Florida just tore them all out. I don't know who it was, which governor who decided to do it, but it wasn't pretty. They wanted to do some landfill stuff and all this other stuff, and all that was protecting the coastline. <laughs> they said that if they put those back, those plants, I can't remember. It, I, it, I can't remember if it was a tree or a bush. But yeah, it actually would protect the coastline. That's never a good idea to encroach upon native plants and and replace what was there, mangroves and and others that are native along the waterways. They also provide uh, vital habitat for wildlife. Exactly. 
Exactly. Uh, birds and all, uh, fish and uh, all kinds of animals, they, they depend on that stuff. Yes, they do. And, uh, and the sea turtles, too, have nesting places along the beach. And uh, so much of the growth and development along the coast has uh, brought in lighting that we find that disturbs their nesting habits. And we've, we've done a lot of we made a lot of gains in expanding awareness and, and uh, trying to take some steps to turn out the lights at, along the beaches in nesting season. And there's only so much you can do, though. You can only imagine, you can only imagine what it was like, uh, you know, 150 years ago. Yeah. You know, before there was so much development. As I, I actually saw. Um uh, David Attenborough showed with Bennett, and one of the things they showed is the babies and what they have to do to survive. And what baby turtle, the gauntlet a baby turtle has to go through just to survive. You want to help them as much as you can. If just turning out the lights is good, then turn off the because they have to get across the sand where there's all these predators. And then when they get into the ocean, there's even more predators. We're lucky we have any turtles. Yeah. They, they, they do have uh, an amazing challenge just to reach uh, the waters and do so in a manner where they can uh, avoid the natural predators. There's a number of children's books that I've seen. I don't know how many titles that I know offhand, but... Some of them have just a beautiful retelling of uh, that challenge. It's a lot of wonderful nature books that um, talk about sea turtles. I love them. They're so pretty and cute and sweet. <laughs> Me too. Uh, they are. When we were watching um, David Attenborough, we're like, uh, they're showing that, and we're both going, uh, like, we're going, go, baby, go! <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, all, all of us love the underdog. <laughs> and it I mean, it gives us an opportunity to root for them. You do realize that the the creatures who are, I can't, I, one was a snake and there was an, a lizard and there was a bunch of stuff. They have families that they're feeding to and stuff like that. But the turtles are just so cute. We just want them to live. <laughs> I know. Especially in their own natural habitat, to be able to see them and observe them is, is uh, so refreshing. Well, I love to visit the uh, wildlife refuges uh, all over the country, actually. It's always a treat. Um, when I was in my 20s, I used, when I lived in Los Angeles, I was raised in L.A., um, We I used to... We go at least once a month during the summer to the wildlife waste station that there is there, and I used to help there. It was always so cool because you're you, not only it was educational. You felt like you were doing something, and you saw all these beautiful animals. <laughs> I time in California also. I lived in the Bay Area for a couple of years in the mid-70s, and I have a family in San Diego, as I mentioned to you earlier, mm -hmm. and that's, that's 
meet the both ends of the state. Uh, spent time in uh, Lake Tahoe. And I every time I visit California, whether it's you know, the Alpine Lake at Lake Tahoe or down in the San Diego area near Point Loma, I always try to envision what it must have been like, say, 150 years ago before it was uh, so densely populated. Yeah. And just think about the natural yeah. you know, lay of the land, and what what those vistas must have looked like when they were dotted with you know houses and buildings. It's one of the most uh, beautiful places on earth, I believe. Oh yeah. Um. What point? I can't remember what the name of it is. I've only lived in San Diego. I visited here all my life, but I only lived in San Diego for the last six years. Um, my brother has lived here for 15 years, and he's been, well, before um, COVID, he used to take me at least once a month to someplace I hadn't been. And I can't, I think it was Point Point Goose. I can't remember. But it's like a point right at the top in uh, San Diego with this incredibly gorgeous vista of the Pacific Ocean. And all this history of um, San Diego and uh, the coastline from uh, the Spanish and American and the, the, the I think it goes all the way back to the Spanish-American War, I think. But um, it just, it, it's the most, one of the most prettiest places. You just, you, 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 you just stand there um, you, and you just look. And the coastline is just gorgeous. And the only reason you know that there's, uh, you can see little houses, but I think it's restricted around there. Because I don't see that many. I, I see how, a lot of homes, but I don't see a lot of businesses there. So they must restrict that area. <laughs> yeah, I, I experienced the same thing when I was there uh, two summers ago for the purpose of going to uh, the military cemetery at Fort Rosencrantz, I believe it's Point Loma. And it's high on a hill, just absolutely gorgeous vistas of downtown San Diego. To the, I guess it's to the east uh, and to the west, uh, out into the Pacific Ocean. But that standpoint is quite gorgeous. And one of the things that I always uh, loved about California too is you could get in the car and you could drive for two hours and you can encounter a different climate. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, that's unimaginable here because here in Florida, you know, you'd have to drive for eight to ten hours before you. You have to drive for six, seven hours just to get away from the flatlands and to see some difference in terrain and then to encounter a little bit different climate. It's, it's quite a drive. And uh, just to experience that in California is, is such an eye-opener. When I went to uh, the Bay Area, 75, uh, in uh, Oakland and Berkeley, and I can recall the first day or two that I was there, we were in the Bay Area, and I was really amazed at how cool the temperatures were. Mm -hmm. You know, the Bay Area is San Francisco, anywhere near San Francisco, quite cool, even in the summertime. Yeah. So it was the summertime. It was incredibly comfortable. And we got in the car, and we were in uh, East Oakland and went through 
uh, the tunnel and came out at Orinda on the way to Concord. And as soon as we entered the tunnel, it was cool and chilly, just like in San Francisco, Oakland. And when we came out of the tunnel, it was 80 degrees. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I'd never expected anything like that because, as I said, we'd have to drive for seven hours out of Florida to get any change in temperature. Yeah, I, that's one thing about Californians. We drive a lot. We, I mean, I remember going up with uh, people from my school up to uh, uh, to go skiing uh, at Mammoth, and it, it, it's like it was January, but we had a heat wave, so it was really warm in California because Santa Ana's make it really hot here when we have them. And so we were all wearing like uh, t-shirts and tank tops, and we—I think we weren't even in the foothills. We were all grabbing our sweaters and sweatshirts to put them on. We already were starting to freeze. <laughs> it didn't take long. No. Uh, it just—it's just amazing. The, the, uh, or if you're even even weirder than that is like if it's really cold, it's winter, and we do get it doesn't get cold here. We, we can get dropped down to the not like the East Coast, but it can drop down to the 40s. People don't realize that. Um, and we drove to the desert to go to Vegas or something, and all of a sudden you're hit by the heat of it's daytime, not uh, night because the desert at night is cold. Um, you're you're hit by the hundred degree heat from being like in the forties. <laughs> it's like you're then it's the opposite. You're peeling off as much as you can. <laughs> that's quite a shock. Yeah, and that's the weird part of living in California. <laughs> well, there's a lot of weird parts, but that's one of them. <laughs> that's the least dangerous yeah. of the weird parts. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of eccentric things out there. And, uh, well, I mean, I was thinking more like earthquakes. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, earthquakes. That's what I was thinking about dangerous. <laughs> well, that's. Well, this could be rather frightening. I've only. I've never experienced one. Oh, yeah. You have, I thought you lived. Oh, you must not have been here when we had one. No, we actually had a minor one. Uh, when I was living in Oakland, uh, I was in, at Lake Tahoe for the weekend, and I had heard on the radio that they had, you know, a very minor earthquake in the Bay Area. And then when I returned on Sunday and got home, up in my home, I looked and there were a couple of pictures that had fallen. So I guess it did shake. Because, you know, I mean, they do have really big earthquakes in San Francisco, Oakland area. <laughs> the one that, yes. that the one that took the the freeway bridge and brought it down during the World Series and thank yes. God that the World Series yeah. was happening because everybody was home. Well, a good portion of the people were home. <laughs> yeah, I I remember that clearly. I think that was in '89 and the uh, just the disruption on the commute for so many people when the bridges were not. Well, I think it was the Bay Bridge was uh, not functioning. Caused a lot of disruption to daily life. Those people that uh, commute and don't take the part. I've been through two major earthquakes. 
people are nicer after an earthquake. It doesn't last very long, but they're polite, they're civil, uh, people are, friendly. People are nice. Yeah, it's so many times these natural occurrences that disrupt life bring out the best in us. Mm hmm Yeah. That's certainly true of hurricanes. You know, there'll be neighbors that you don't really relate to on a daily basis. Everybody's busy working and going about their daily lives. And then when a hurricane is uh, aimed at you and about to come to town, you see neighbor helping neighbor with tasks to prepare. It's amazing, isn't Boarding it? Up that people can change, and it, it like I said, it's, it's I, I think it's an effect of we're alive, we're we're all together. Let's help each other as much as we can. It's sort of like a sort of like a shock because it only lasts like a, maybe a, maybe uh, two weeks, usually maybe a week and a half. Uh, Northridge it lasted pretty long. Uh, when we got hit by the Northridge earthquake, it, pretty much a month people were nice to each other. <laughs> in LA because that one really was scary that was the, that was the scariest earthquake and I am a native Californian that was the scariest earthquake I've ever been through <sighs> yeah these these occurrences certainly remind us that we're interdependent and we got to help each other I wish it's, people would remember it longer I wish people would actually remember it that we're all here, we're all together, and just be, you know, understand that we're interdependent, as you said. I just wish you didn't have to have a disaster to think that. <laughs> we could help each other and protect each other so much better to COVID if we could just keep that in mind. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, we've gotten to the point, we're going to talk about your book. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Um, you know, how did you come up with the concept, what it's about, all that good stuff. Okay, well, um, the name of my book is called uh, Limer Comics, and uh, Limer Comics uh, is illustrated by Steve Feldman, and it offers lighthearted original limericks on a wide range of history and science topics each with an informational panel of surprising facts, and it's, it's all presented in entertaining comics. And it uh, is written for kids uh, ages eight and up, actually kids of all ages, and uh, they're invited to linger on every page and enjoy the humor, uh, ponder inferences, and view the evocative details of each illustrated page. So it's a, a limerick, and I wrote the book uh, and have each, uh, the subject matter on each page changes. And Limerick is a five-line poem. It's a literary device that I use to try to capture the attention of kids and get them interested in topics in history, science, geography, civics. And uh, what better way to present that or make it entertaining other than to put it in a comics format. And my partner, Steve Feldman, uh, did a, just an admirable job. He's such a gifted artist at putting together uh, beautiful illustrations 
then the, the colors just really pop and it's just so visually appealing. I tried to make a book that was worthy of the coffee table and uh, I, my background is that I'm a, a retired elementary school teacher. I spent 41 years in the elementary classroom in the middle grades and um, the idea for Limerick Comics was born out of necessity. In the 90s, uh, I, I, I tried to always have humor and make learning fun, whether it was on the playground or in the classroom or on the school stage. I wanted the kids to really find the learning fun. And so we did a number of interesting uh, classroom events like uh, have the kids read children's monologues. We did a lot of one-act plays. I did 12 fully staged musicals throughout my years, and kids loved to perform. And whether we were just reading an informal play in the classroom or putting on a, a staged musical, and when I ever asked, I asked, you know, who wants to read this part or that part, the hands would fly up, me, 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 me. And then, even reluctant readers wanted to play a part, and it was rewarding education because it helped to build fluency and confidence in their reading. And I did a lot of read-alouds. I read many, many novels, and I tried to model reading in order to, again, get kids interested in reading. So um, I presented all kinds of novels and picture books, everything you can think of. And one day I decided to bring from home a book that I had read to my own sons that they really liked. And I thought, well, I'll bring that to school because I know the kids will like this. It was The Book of Nonsense by Edward Lear. And Edward Lear was the, the quintessential British author who uh, wrote this book of nonsense. And um, he, he was a, a gifted illustrator, poet, and, uh, and writer. And so the limericks were silly, they were goofy, and uh, the kids just loved them. So when I finished the book, I had run out of limericks, the kids said, well, we want more. And I said, I don't know what have any more. <laughs> so I pledged to go to the school library, couldn't find any. Went down to the public library, couldn't find a book that had children's limericks in it. Went to the bookstores, the commercial bookstores, I couldn't find any. So I went back to school, told the kids, couldn't find any. They were disappointed, so we decided to write our own. And it was a fun exercise, and I'd get the, the phone book out, and really the first line or two about the learner would be based upon a name. Pick a name out of the phone book, the first name, and then you know find a story that would you know get the second line that would match that name. It would be easy to run. And we did some of those, and they were stupid and silly, and kids loved all the illustrations to accompany those. But for me, the ones that I had written, I wanted to choose meaningful topics that would trigger and uh, provide some uh, learning and be meaningful in social studies and science. So any of the topics that we would encounter along the road in social studies or science, I wrote the limericks about those. So as, my, as the years went by, I had this collection of limericks and year after year, I was teaching writing and we were pretty compelled to prepare kids for tests and some of these writing exercises we weren't able to do. 
because remember we were in the testing year and we had a, you know, it was a state mandate, mandated tests and we had to score well. So it was kind of sad, didn't do as many plays. Anyway, uh, I'd always, no matter how busy we were in the school year, I'd always get my box out and read the limericks that I and the kids had written. Put them, read them, put them on the chalkboard, and the kids were always so compelled and enchanted by those. I thought, well, as soon as I retire, I've got to sit down and I've got to write a book of limericks that would be entertaining for kids. Because I felt like the genre was underrepresented. I'd go to public libraries and have a real difficult time finding any books, again, that use that literary device. So that's basically how Limerick Comics was born. The subject matter changes on each page, and uh, every page, you know, with the turn of the page, you get an entirely different topic. Cool. Um, and you have an exciting announcement. Yes. I wanted to let your, your listeners know that uh, I'm so delighted that a company called Bedside Reading has hotel partners at luxury hotels around the United States. And for the last several years, they have provided as an amenity to hotel guests uh, a set of eight titles of books that are placed by the bedside for uh, guests and their families to read. And November the 1st, uh, bedside reading began uh, using Limerick Comics as one of the eight titles that they're offering, and it's the only children's book in the lineup uh, at hotels across the country that are in their partners. So I'm I'm really thrilled about that. Just the idea of getting my book in the hands of curious readers, and also to provide the opportunity for parents to read together with their children. You know, sometimes we have a mistaken notion that it's just parents of younger children in the primary grades that want to read together with their, with their kids. But if so too uh, are middle grade parents, parents of middle grade students that want to read together with their kids too. I think I the way that that's struck, true. Go ahead. I was going to say that's true. My dad used to do, well, my parents both used to do that with us. Even, and, and even when we got older, it wasn't reading with us, but we would, like, uh, exchange books and talk over. I, I can't remember a car ride where my father wasn't going over some book he read. Um, <laughs> that, I think he produced two very enthusiastic readers because of those, those drives. <laughs> Yeah, and the layout of the book uh, it came natural for me. I didn't just want to write a, a limerick and then turn the page and get another limerick. Whatever the, since the subject matter dealt with a specific topic like um, bioluminescence and science, uh, gastrolis and animals, uh, <coughs> the story of King Tut, the nine-year-old pharaoh from Egypt, um, I, when, whenever you, you read something like this in the classroom, the natural tendency is to follow up with uh, some meaningful discourse or have a discussion. And so you have the, you have the limerick 
it's illustrated in the, the uh, five lines in a comics format. And then below, at the bottom of each page, we had a six panel. And I put in there a host of really fun facts and informative information that will provide a springboard for discussion between parents and child or teacher and students and uh, have meaningful conversation. The kids always bring prior knowledge to any topic that you bring up. And I really wanted to write the book so that working parents can come home from work and not have to remember what happened in a novel maybe five nights ago, the last time they were able to sit down after dinner and read with their child. They can just turn the page and, and do a new topic. And I had, year after year, in the elementary school, at parent conference night, I was always perplexed because, particularly with struggling, the parents of struggling readers or reluctant readers, they would always say, I want to read with my child and I want to help him become a better reader. Could you pick out a, a book or two that we could read together? And I, I went to the shelf and I would hand them a, you know, a novel that I thought would capture them and keep them, but I knew that it might be three or four days before they could sit down and read again, and it might be difficult to recall, you know, the chronology of what took place before. So I wanted to write, write a book that they could pick up and put down at any time and read together. It's great. That's, that's, that's good. Anything to make a good reader. Um, we don't have a lot of time. Uh, where can they pick up the book and... Um, also, do you have any virtual events coming up? Oh yeah, um, a couple of, couple of other notes. Um, the uh, Hollywood Weekly magazine is going to have a feature ad with all of the books in bedside reading, so you can look for Limerick Comics display there on the. It'll hit the newsstands on December the first. Hollywood Weekly magazine, and also this is very exciting. Women's World magazine. It uh, has a uh, book giveaway with bedside reading, and it's going to be in the December 10th edition of Women's World magazine. So look for that. You'll see the eight titles offered by bedside reading, and Limerick Comics is among them. Limerick Comics is available uh, for purchase at all of the online booksellers, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and all the rest. And also, uh, the hard copy available is available uh, on my website. We can get you that book in a, hard, in a matter of uh, three or four days anywhere around the United States. And my website is simply limerickcomics.com. And also, take a moment to go to stevefeldman.com because he has a wonderful portfolio and so many different uh, illustrations and wonderful offerings on his website as well. So it's limerickcomics.com and stevefeldman.com. Steve is an illustrator who lives on the Oregon Trail, uh, actually on the Oregon Trail up in uh, eastern Oregon. A wonderful guy, and uh, I, I am so fortunate to have Steve to illustrate the, uh, do the illustrations in Limerick Comics. Great. Um, that's wonderful. Do you have any social media like Instagram or Facebook or Twitter that people could get in touch with you at? 
Yes, uh, they can get me at uh, Robert underscore Hoyman on my Twitter. And also you can find me at on Instagram at Robert Hoyman. Perfect. Uh, thank you, Robert. I really enjoyed our chat. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for chatting with Sherry.